Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hi, Argument listeners. It's Jane Koston. I'm on vacation, but unfortunately, the news cycle is relentless. So I wanted to share an episode from our archives I think might be relevant right now on a topic that's going to be an important player in our political wars. Today's Supreme Court is the most conservative it's been in 90 years. Since we recorded this episode in January, the bench has overturned Roe versus Wade. And with the upcoming term in October, the court will also rule on ending affirmative action and giving more power to state legislatures to oversee elections. The court is moving to the right. And so liberals want to take action before other rights like same-sex marriage come into question. So here's my conversation on the problem of Supreme Court polarization. Today on The Argument, is it time to reform the Supreme Court? Ever since Senate Republicans blocked Merrick Garland's Supreme Court nomination in 2016, there's been a lot of conversation about whether the nation's highest court is becoming too partisan in favor of conservatives, or even what that would mean for the court to become too partisan. Right now, the court's approval rating is sitting at a two-decade low. Granted, I'm not sure how much I want the Supreme Court of the United States to be thinking about their polling, because what would they do about it? And with big cases in front of the justices right now, like the one that would overturn Roe v. Wade, a lot of liberals are asking if the time has come to take more drastic steps to rebalance the Supreme Court. Even President Biden is wading into the court reform waters. Last year, he formed a bipartisan commission to take a look at some of the proposals, like court expansion, also known as court packing. You might remember that from AP U.S. history. Or setting term limits so the justices don't stay on the bench forever. Or requiring the justices to abide by ethics rules. Because fun fact, right now they don't have any. But the big question for that commission, and for me, and for a lot of people, is once you start reforming the Supreme Court, where do you stop? I'm Jane Koston, and honestly, I don't have a strong opinion on whether major court reform is a good idea or not. So I want my guests today to try and convince me. They come down on very different sides of this question. But there's one big and possibly confusing thing they do agree on. Very enjoyable that both of us uh, are named Russ, even though we take different views. (laughs) That was actually uh, something I wanted to clear up. How do you want me to differentiate between the two of you? Is it okay if I just call you your full names each time? Sure. Yeah, that would be fine. Russ Feingold is the president of the American Constitution Society and a former Democratic senator from Wisconsin who served from 1993 to 2011. He's an advocate for radical reform to restore the court's credibility. And our other Russ, Russ Miller, is an attorney and law professor at Washington and Lee and the head of the Max Planck Law Network in Germany. He thinks fears of a partisan court are overblown. Russ Feingold, you think the Supreme Court should be reformed. Why? What did the court do to make you think that it needs reform? Well, we at the American Constitution Society have come to the view, actually over time and somewhat reluctantly, to think that something has to be done to change the court. And and here's maybe the way to look at it. We all learn, uh, hopefully at a young age, that there are three branches to our government. The Congress, the executive branch, the president, and the Supreme Court. 
And for all of those or any of those institutions to be uh, considered credible and legitimate, people have to feel that the way that the people that are in those places are chosen is legitimate. And so obviously questions of campaigns and reapportionment and gerrymandering are issues that are of concern with regard to the Congress. I don't need to tell anybody about all the disputes that are going on with regard to presidential selection and the Electoral College and the disputes about the last couple of elections, so it affects the presidency. But the one that I sort of never thought would have this problem would be the Supreme Court. But it has occurred because of the way in which the norms of the United States Senate have changed in a very disturbing way to basically, in our view, have a couple of seats stolen from presidents who were Democrats, one being on the occasion of the death of Antonin Scalia, where President Obama did not get to have his choice, and then the rushed replacement right before the election of Justice Ginsburg in, I thought, and we think, in an unseemly manner, means that the composition of the court has become very questionable and, in some ways, seemingly illegitimate. So this is a concern about the legitimacy of the court and thus the legitimacy of its decisions. Russ Miller, you're not a fan of reforming the Supreme Court. Why don't you think it's necessary? I have a couple of ways of framing my answer to that question. And and the first is to recognize, as you put it, is it necessary? Is it absolutely necessary to reform the court at this time? And that would allow us to ask some questions about, is it functioning well Is it efficient? Is it adjudicating constitutional disputes? Is it harmonizing federal law across all of the circuits? And on all of those scores, I think it's fair to say that the court is functioning and it's it's a a well-adapted institution. And so it's hard to convince me that we have a necessity here for reforming the court. Let me offer another way of framing it, which is to say that when we speak about reform, there are a number of possible proposals that touch on the substance of its work, its jurisdiction, uh, its makeup, the way that the justices are impaneled. And so I have to say that uh, it's not quite my position that I'm opposed to every possible form of reform that we might pursue. But I would say the thing that I find missing from most of the discussions around the reform debate is the concern or the claim that the quality of the court's jurisprudence is somehow deficient. By all accounts, I find that the quality of the court's jurisprudence remains quite high, quite credible, quite intensively debated among the justices. And that, to me, would be a different landscape if we felt that the justices were acting not just maybe ideologically, but rather that they were captured by political or partisan movement. And we could measure that by the declining quality of their reasoning. That, to me, would be a much more compelling moment for discussions of reform. Do you think that Merrick Garland's nomination being blocked and Amy Coney Barrett's appointment, do you think those were legitimate, illegitimate? If yes, should anything be done? I think that significant and well-established norms were violated in the nomination and appointment of Justice Gorsuch. And that complicates, of course, then the appointment and impanelment of Justice Barrett, because many of the arguments made in the Garland-Gorsuch context were then hypocritically abandoned or neglected 
in the Barrett context. Having said all of that, it's my sense that those represented departures from established norms, and especially the Senate's longstanding ambitions for deliberation and a discursive practice, but that they didn't represent violations of the law or departures from the constitutional process. The parties had the right, it may not have been wise to pursue those processes in that strategic way, but they had the right to do it. it surprised us all that Republicans might have chosen to do it. And in that sense, I find it a little troubling to see so much heavy rhetoric like theft of the court, illegitimacy of the court, because of course those justices are now impaneled and, and doing their work in this profound institution. That's my that's my framing of it. I understand that that it disrupted longstanding tradition and norms, but that in the end they were surprising new strategies in a hard-fought game. And it's possible that that one of the sides has even dirtier hands, but both sides have participated and contributed to what the senator is describing as this decline in legitimacy at the court. I can think of, you know, the Senate Democrats' decision to nuke the filibuster in uh, 2013, was it, Senator? That's right. I know that that didn't apply directly to the Supreme Court nomination process, but still, that was a step in a direction towards norm-breaking and exaggerated politicization of these processes that may or may not match the, the kinds of activities that you're describing of the last couple of years, but nevertheless demonstrate that both sides have some dirt on their hands in, in this respect. I am 34 years old, and I remember a time, now granted, I was in grade school, so like the Supreme Court wasn't really something I was that concerned about. I don't remember thinking or talking or hearing conversations about the Supreme Court as much in the 1990s. It seems that the way we talk about the court as being the be-all and end-all that used to be just something that people who are social conservatives who are opposed to abortion thought about and talked about and voted about. But Russ Feingold, you talked about how after the death of Antonin Scalia and specifically after Ruth Bader Ginsburg's passing, this need or conversation about the Supreme Court really got charged. Why do you think that is? Well, I think your perception is absolutely right. For most of my lifetime, I certainly did not perceive the court as something that people focused on on a day-to-day basis. The underpinning of the legitimacy of the court has been undermined by taking away the right of the legitimately elected presidents to choose the justices. That made people very suspicious of what was going on. So the result is a problem for the American people here in terms of their view of the Supreme Court. Of course, it has to do with the decisions and what their rights are. But it's also that the perception of the court, as you've pointed out, is in a very bad place. And I think it has to do with the fact that people think there's something, in effect, rotten in Denmark, that somehow the court has been turned into a political body in a way that we wouldn't have thought of as, even under the Rehnquist Court. This feels different. It feels different to me. It feels different to the American people, I think, in many respects. The challenge I see 
is that in general, people treat the Supreme Court as if if the Supreme Court makes a decision that you like, the Supreme Court is legitimate. If the Supreme Court makes a decision that you don't like, the Supreme Court is illegitimate. So I'm curious, Russ Miller, do you think concerns about the politicization of the court are overblown? Has the court changed or did we? Well, I I think that the senator was fair about positioning his organization and his own views on this by ultimately concluding that those who are most actively advocating for reform of the court right now are doing so for two sort of linked reasons. The first is the strongly held, very visceral, emotional sense on the part of the Democrats that at least two appointments to the Supreme Court were stolen from the Democratic Party. And that's sort of one basis for the argument for reform, but it feeds into what I find to be actually the more troubling basis, and that is that it's the expectation that the justices impaneled, in their view, illegitimately in this way, will necessarily lead to outcomes, constitutional outcomes that they don't desire. And so in some sense, boiled to its core, this debate and the press for reform today is really about the desire to avoid expected or anticipated outcomes in constitutional law. And um, I want to make clear, I suspect that I desire nearly in every case the same outcomes (laughs) that the senator desires from most of these big cases. But that I find an extremely sort of partisan or ideological position to be taking with respect to the reform of the court. Russ Feingold, I'm curious as to your response, because it does seem like more of a political, ideological effort than a the court is in need of reform for non-ideological reasons. I, I'm curious as to your response. Well, that's completely wrong. And it uh, the professor's characterization of this as partisan was actually partisan in itself. Because the truth is that I served in the United States Senate for 18 years, 16 years on the Judiciary Committee. And the process that was used there by both Republicans and Democrats alike, not on a partisan basis, to approve or consider justices was completely different from this abuse that was recently instituted by Senator McConnell in the Senate. It's unheard of. So that was an abuse of the Senate rules and the norms, whether you're a Democrat or Republican. And look, I voted for the current Supreme Court justices. I voted for Justice Roberts and I voted against Justice Alito. So this was not partisan. The same thing goes with the tradition of not rushing a vote on a Supreme Court nominee right before an election. In fact, the rules in the Senate about not jamming through nominees was called the Thurmond Rule, named after Strom Thurmond, one of the most conservative senators of all time. So none of this was partisan. And I do have to take strong issue with the idea that there's simply no necessity to deal with this, apart from any partisan concerns, uh, because I think the other Russ has characterized the court in a way that's far too favorable. Uh, The court is having real problems in operating properly. You had one of the most controversial issues of the last 50 years, the idea of a woman's right to choose on the block where a Texas law is creating an incentive for people to get monetary relief for identifying people who are having an abortion. And what the court did was without briefs, without a public hearing, without a real opinion, they basically prevented women in Texas and continuing till now 
from getting an abortion. That is not a court that's functioning properly. That is a court that's hiding the ball with regard to a fundamental constitutional right that was established 50 years ago. So my view here is that this is in no way partisan to point out the flaws in the court. Of course, we're concerned about what the outcomes of this might be. But what we're more concerned about is the legitimacy of the United States Supreme Court, because we don't want it to be illegitimate. We don't want it to be partisan for either side. We want it to be a a court that people can look at and say, look, uh, we think what they do there is on the level, is appropriate procedure, and is fair. I want to jump in here because I'm curious for both of you. The Supreme Court makes a lot of decisions, and most of them are about things that, like, I can make myself care about, but, like, they're not really, like, hot issues. But since 2000, a unanimous decision has been more likely than any other result. About 43% of all decisions were 9-0 in the 2021 Supreme Court term. That's a lot of unanimous decisions. Is that a sign the court is functioning well, or is that another call for concern? No, to me, that's, you know, sort of playing with statistics. That What matters is what are the most important decisions? Those that have to do with constitutional rights. Those that have to do with whether a woman has a right to choose. Decisions about freedom of speech. Decisions about the rights of immigrants and the questions that have to do with uh, President Trump's policies toward people coming from Muslim countries and the like. So it's not a numeric game. It's the cases that matter. Of course, there are many cases that are more business-oriented or more technical in nature. That's not the test of the court, a, a numbers game of how many cases there are. The question is, what is the significance of the cases? And to what extent is the court living up to its responsibility to protect the rights of the American people? We're working on a series about what feminism looks like now. In the wake of the Dobbs decision, it feels like a lot is changing. And as part of that series, we want to hear from you about how your own feminism is changing, or why it isn't. So if you identify as a feminist, no matter your gender, we want to know, for you, are there any places where you think feminism is going too far right now? Leave me a message at 347-915-4324, and one of our show staff might be in touch. As a global leader in experiential education, Drexel University encourages students to both gain knowledge and find new ways to turn that knowledge into action. Drexel is proud to be one of 39 private institutions in the nation to achieve recognition by the Carnegie Classification of Institutions of Higher Education as an R1 research institution, affirming this Philadelphia University's commitment to discovery and innovation. Experience what education can be at drexel.edu. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. And the very first place that you can get the newest episodes of our podcast, it's a full day and a half before they appear anywhere else online, is the New York Times audio app. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, plus This American Life shorts, which are handpicked stories for when you want something, you know, short. That's only at the New York Times audio app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. specifically about what you've all been waiting for, what types of reform there should or could be and what you both think of them. So we're going to go through them in turn. 
because there are a couple of different suggestions. And I put them in two buckets. One is to change what the court looks like. More members talk about court packing, talking about term limits, how long you are on the court and what that means. Then we'll talk a little bit about what the court does. But let's start out with court expansion or court packing. Russ Feingold, my concern is that packing the court could even more politicize the court by just turning it into a game for each political party to add their nominees to the bench. So I'm curious how you think about court expansion and how would it work? And what do you think it would do that would make what the court looks like and court does better? Well, it is not an easy question. I certainly did not have the view that seats should be added to the Supreme Court until the last few years when these seats were stolen. I would have thought it was a dangerous thing to do, that it would lead to politicization of the court. But you say this is court packing. They already packed the court. They did it by using this process. So to refer to this as court packing, when they actually used illegitimate procedures in the Senate to pack the court, has to be the way this is characterized. So I come to this slowly, and this has been done throughout American history. We have had different numbers of members of the Supreme Court in various times in American history. It does not require constitutional amendment. It is possible that you could create a couple of seats on the Supreme Court to balance this, to get us back to legitimacy, to get us away from the partisan wars and make them potentially temporary seats. I think you could actually create seats that could sunset, even though there is a good behavior requirement. I think you could do that, and that might be a compromise. And as you point out, there are other ways this can be accomplished, potentially by having panels of Court of Appeal justices, either combining with the Supreme Court justices or some other way of doing this. And some of the proposals out there suggest you change the composition that way. But in some way, this lock that these folks uh, that have been put on the court in this illegitimate way have on the court needs to be undone so that we can get back to a view that all Americans can see the court as legitimate. I would say that the idea of adding justices to the court is probably the legally most accessible form of reform. This is the, the proposal for reform that we've seen happen over history. Uh, the number of justices has fluctuated. But I have to say, it's, to me, maybe the most troubling proposal for reform. And I would say that because it strikes me that its main purpose would be to simply rebalance on ideological terms. That is, it's a concession that the court is no longer necessarily about legal process and legal outcomes, but instead it's meant to be structured to achieve particular political outcomes. One of the best bulwarks we have against frequent overturning of jurisprudence is to have a stable set core of justices at the court. And so by adding justices, we would be inviting some some tumult in our jurisprudence. We'd be inviting new perspectives and new voting constellations. And I have to say, alongside our concern for particular constitutional outcomes, a, a very real value in the law is the hope for stability and predictability. This is a real kind of justice not to be underestimated. And so I would say it strikes me as a concession to viewing the court strictly in ideological terms, and it puts at risk any possibilities of stability or, or predictability at the court by inviting 
ever-growing numbers of, of justices to make these decisions. So those are some of the, the concerns I have, the most troubling elements of the proposal that we should add justices to the court. You see, what the professor has just described is precisely what just happened. He's talking about some kind of a thing that could happen in the future, but that's what just happened. You have decisions coming down that suddenly have nothing to do with the past, but have to do with the preferences of the conservative elements in this country that don't like some of the precedents. So the idea that somehow rebalancing this in a way that reflects that change is the opposite. You are describing what's already been done, not what could happen in the future. Of course, it could get worse. It's possible. I concede that. But the idea that somehow the court is just coming along and following it, its mores and its traditions flies in the face of what they're up to on things from voting rights to gun rights to issues of a woman's right to choose. I have to say it was really revelatory for me to see in the commission report as it talked about the history of these various attempts to change the structure of the court, add or, or subtract justices. It emerged from its accounting of that history that each of those moments were accompanied by some key sort of political or social factors. The commission report said that there were new debates about should we add new justices or at times of significant social change, is there a need to add justices in order to reflect new social perspectives? You could imagine the, the New Deal era. But it also said, it revealed to me that these reform proposals emerged in periods when one of the political parties had real political dominance. I'd be curious if the senator thinks that we have those conditions now, independent of whether we think it's a good idea or not, do those conditions exist now such that we would once again be at a point, a, a political inflection point, where we might be talking about reform? The issue here is not the political climate or ideology. The issue here is whether the Supreme Court is perceived by the American people as legitimate. And that's the question for us. You know, I agree with you that the outcome should not be the basis for this. But those who make the decisions have to have the right to do this based on a legitimate process that put them there. And so our goal here, our organization, and I think many progressives, is that they simply want a Supreme Court that will be able to judge things on the merits rather than based on a pre-cooked ideological agenda that is reflected through people who are 50, 52 years old who are going to be on that court for 30 or 40 years. That's the reality that we're not talking about. This is a court that may be there for many, many years. And if that doesn't have a grounding in legitimacy, it doesn't work. And that's why you need to add seats to balance this in order to make the court legitimate, not necessarily to lead to certain outcomes, but to make the court something that the American people can say, all right, look, we vote for senators, we vote for congressmen, we vote for president. We don't get to vote for Supreme Court justices. They have to get their legitimacy from something other than elections. And that's what's missing. And are you not at all worried about the potential harm to the court's legitimacy by pursuing this reform that would add justices simply to try to establish this realignment. I, I guess, as I said from the beginning, I, I feel like many of these remedies actually threaten to do the exact harm they propose to correct. Well, I, in fairness, yes, I do worry about it. But that harm has already been done. 
And yes, it could get worse. That's true. So that's fair, Professor. There are some risks. But I think the situation is grave. And as I said, it doesn't have to be permanent. It could be done with expiring seats, potentially. There are other ways to do this rather than fundamentally altering the Supreme Court in terms of the way it's operated over the years, which I have always respected. I want to get to another possible reform that people have been discussing, and that is the addition of term limits. I'm interested first to hear from you, uh, Russ Feingold, as to term limits as a possibility and what could be the good side of term limits for the Supreme Court. I have come to the conclusion that there's something really untoward about the way the court is operating now, where individual justices living far longer than the founders would have ever anticipated end up uh, crossing generations uh, in terms of being on the court now. This can be a good thing on occasion. Uh, Occasionally, people who talk about this say, look, Oliver Wendell Holmes served on the Supreme Court till he was 90. But the truth is, this isn't about the ideology or the outcomes. This is about what's happening with people on the court. You have somebody like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who's in terrible physical condition, feeling that she has to hang on, hoping for a certain political outcome to determine who would succeed her on the court. This, was, this is not a good thing in terms of the court and in terms of our system, not to mention her own family. And then you have the reverse that's going on now. Justice Breyer, an excellent justice, you know, frankly, being pressured by progressives to quit so that President Biden can replace him. I don't think that's a good phenomenon either. Uh, and it has to do with the fact that people are encouraged now in the court to sort of game this in terms of elections. So if you had set terms, I think that you could have a situation that would be better, more predictable, and people would see it as fundamentally fair if everybody had to live by that 18-year limit. And by the way, um, those individuals could continue to serve as senior justices, potentially. They could serve on the courts of appeal. Uh, They don't have to go out in the job market. And I would just add that that I, I wouldn't really worry about the justices getting jobs after they're justices. I think they're in pretty good shape. I know, Russ Miller, you know, you are currently working a lot with German attorneys. And under German constitutional law, there's a term limit of 12 years. What are the drawbacks of term limits in your view? I mean, I keep thinking about the stories of Thurgood Marshall basically watching soap operas towards the end of his life while his clerks did a lot of work. And I stand Thurgood Marshall, to be clear. But there is something about the fact that, like, you have these big decisions being made by people who are 85 years old and basically untouchable. So... What are the drawbacks to term limits? Because I could definitely see some good arguments for them. Yeah, this is one of the reforms that I I don't find as as objectionable, say, as, as the proposals for court packing. It seems likely the, the most direct path would be a constitutional amendment. And that that's, is, of course, again, almost impossible. Having said all of that, and I'm glad that you mentioned the, the practice in, in Germany, it's true that the apex court there, the constitutional court in Germany, has uh, 12-year terms of service for its justices. If we have term limits, we should expect to see considerable turnover, regular and persistent turnover at the court. And I've already said that one of my main concerns about all of these discussions for reform is that we not sacrifice or compromise stability and predictability in the law. That is, 
if precedent is somewhat more malleable in constitutional contexts, one of the bulwarks against changing it is to have the same long-serving justices at the court. But if we're turning over justices regularly, then we would be inviting reconsideration of, of this malleable precedent in constitutional context. That's a concern of mine. We're inviting considerable change and dynamism at the risk of stability and predictability, values, just justice values of predictability and stability. And just to clarify, the reading I've done on the proposal for term limits specifically a bill introduced by the Democrats, it would create 18-year Supreme Court term limits, but it would not apply retroactively, as in the justices who are on the court now would still get lifetime appointments. And they also would require the Senate to act on nominations within 120 days before the nomination is automatically seated. But Russ Feingold, what about appointing a set number of judges every four years that every president knows that they get two judges or four judges. I think that has a lot of merit to it. I think that the idea that people say, well, people are going to vote on the basis of who the president's going to appoint. Well, who do they think they're voting, how they're voting now? (laughs) This was, this has been driving the elections in a haphazard way, but what's thrown into the mix is sort of gaming who's the sickest member of the court, who's the oldest member of the court, and all these untoward things. It should be a regular process where everybody knows that every president gets some changes, but we don't want to get to the point, as the professor correctly points out, that there's so many changes and so much of this that you lose any kind of continuity on the court. Um, The goal here is to create reasonable, regular opportunities without going too far and undercutting the continuity of the court. I think the problem with that is that, of course, you're going to be exponentially increasing the number of incidences in which this intense process, intensely politicized process for selecting and advising and consenting on the nominations, when that political circus around appointments takes place, we're going to be exponentially increasing the incidences of this. And you just had three under Trump in one term. This would only be two. But the proposal that Jane offered was four per presidency, four per no, no, term. No, no, that's a hypothetical. It just, no, no, let's no. let's I, just get weird. I, I think that's too much. I yeah. agree with you it's on going that, to Professor. increase the incidence of of one of the processes that that the senator finds very problematic now in its current operation, but problematic as a source of the delegitimizing politicization or partisanship at the court. In some sense, we're saying we're going to fix that by inviting more of those processes. Well, I'm glad that we're agreed on something, but I, I do want to get into that that element of the politicization of the court, because I think that there are we talked about reforms to what the court knows. People are people are angry. People are raising questions. It seems like a really easy thing to do would be the Supreme Court could just voluntarily adopt ethics rules and transparency guidelines and just say, like, we shouldn't go on lengthy trips that are paid for by liberal organizations. We should not go hunting with the vice president of the United States. We should have to disclose gifts and other things. Like, that just seems obvious. So why hasn't that happened? Well, amen. That is exactly what I think. Because you're right. Here's the the, the nuance on this. The lower federal courts have these rules. Right. The Supreme Court's the only one that doesn't. It's the Supreme Court that doesn't have. So we, we put the reforms in three buckets. The composition of the court. Secondly, term limits. But third, reforms that would not require that kind of, uh, of a lift. 
And one of them would be to do this. These are things that would greatly improve the legitimacy of the court, at least in terms of the perception, uh, apart from the other issues that we've discussed that are very difficult. And so let me just jump uh, in only to say that. Yeah. I see I see the spectrum of reforms exactly the same way, and it's at that end, if, if end is the right way of portraying it, but it's at that range of the reforms where I see, also see real promise and, and some real possibility. I agree. There's, there's no reason we shouldn't have some kind of ethics framework for our Supreme Court justices uh, with the qualification, the, the caveat that if, if the court itself were to construct these or con, uh, conceptualize them, um, we have the same problems that the senator is highlighting, which is the current court would be illegitimate on, on his terms by virtue of its empanelment. So we couldn't even trust, you know, the ethics they might ethics uh, limits they might place on themselves, and that is a little bit more troubling if we pursued that through legislation. And I say that only in the context of assault on the judiciary in Eastern Europe, especially in Poland and Hungary, of the last last five or six years. And one of the implements that the authoritarian governments have used to try to gain control over the, the courts was to establish ethics standards and create external review panels or review boards to enforce them. So I know you both can imagine how this would be really delicate territory, really very fragile I, territory. I generally assume that all of my ideas could have terrible consequences. <laughs> exactly. I want to get to my last question, which I think gets to the result of the reform process. If you have a reform, the implication is that something is broken and needed to be reformed. What would it mean for both of you? Let's say, Russ Feingold, that we take on the reforms that you advocate. How would you know it was working? I would know it was working once it was implemented. If people began to regard the Supreme Court again as a body where they weren't sure what they were going to do in a case, that they did not have to look at who nominated them, but rather at the interesting development of their jurisprudence over time, and that they actually were legitimate independent players, the the ideal that I know the professor uh, agrees with. So that would be the key. And it's not just the reality. It's also that it be perceived that way. Because this branch is not democratic and needs to get its legitimacy uh, from how it's selected and how it conducts itself. So that would be the test for me, whether reform was working. Yeah, I, I just don't, I don't have the same idealistic hope that we could impanel nine justices um, that are somehow devoid of some political identification or ideological identification. I, I think that constitutional law is very very much constitutional politics. And in that sense, it's very much politics. To that end, I'm not interested in totally conceding to that reality and suggesting that we should try to strive for political alignment or balance on the court. But I just don't think we we do the, the, the hope for some kind of an integrity and, and legal positioning and work at the court any favors by suggesting that we now want to change it to get particular political alignments. And the hope I have for that is actually the current chief justice. We can see him struggling valiantly, I have to say, to try to achieve exactly that. I mean, in a number of cases from ACA to June Medical Services, the chief justice is working to try to shore up the institutional integrity of this court. 
and I know that he takes it as a, a, a great credit to his longstanding efforts at institutional integrity that the court did reach so many unanimous or nearly unanimous decisions in the last term. And this is why everybody hates him. <laughs> That's the sign of a, of a good justice. Well, Professor, I can't believe you used Chief Justice as an example because he was legitimately nominated, legitimately confirmed, and I voted for him <laughs> despite his partisan concern. That is the opposite of what has happened here. People have been jammed on the Supreme Court on a legitimate, illegitimate process who are not acting like Chief Justice Roberts, but are acting in a way that is ideologically driven. And that is the fundamental reason why we need reform. I have to only offer one final correction, which is to say that, as you said throughout the show, as you characterize the, the process of, of the last several appointments as illegitimate, they, of course, didn't involve violations of the law. <laughs> and they followed the constitutional processes, but they, they sidestepped established norms at the Senate. And, and so I, I think we have to be a little careful about how we portray it as illegitimate in the sense that none of them were illegally impaneled. All of them conformed illegitimate to the constitutional process. Illegitimate does not illegal. It has to do with the perception. And the violation of longstanding norms is absolutely about legitimacy without being about illegal And actions. it's that sense, I would say, th this commitment to reaffirming longstanding norms that actually makes me most cautious about radical reform of yet another one of our institutions, where our institutions seem so imperiled. This is one that, um, although before the justices reach the courthouse door, there's quite a lot of po politics going on. If we can, let's leave this institution intact. Russ Feingold and Russ Miller, thank you both so much. Thank you. Thanks, you all. Russ Feingold is the president of the American Constitution Society and a former senator from Wisconsin. Russ Miller is an attorney and law professor at Washington and Lee and the head of the Max Planck Law Network in Germany. Finally, I think where I come down on reforming the Supreme Court is that there are two ways to reform the Supreme Court. One is to reform what the court looks like. The other is to reform what the court does. And I think that there might be decent arguments for both of those. But my concern here is that we're having a process conversation. For instance, how would we know the Supreme Court reforms worked? Would there be some decision that the Supreme Court would rule on and we would say, ha ha, the reforms worked because they ruled in this way? What if they ruled in a way that we all hated? Would that mean the reforms didn't work? Would that mean the reforms did? And honestly, I'm still not sure. If you want to hear more about Supreme Court reform from the Russes, I recommend Americans No Longer Have Faith in the Supreme Court. That Has Justices Worried by Russ Feingold and The Guardian, published October 2021. For the other side, you can read We Don't Need to Reform the Supreme Court by Russ Miller in Just Security published February 2021. And if you really want to get knee-deep in constitutional law, read The Future of the Supreme Court Reform by Daniel Epps and Ganesh Sitaraman in Harvard Law Review, published May 2021. You can find links to all of these in our episode notes. The Argument is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Phoebe Lett, Elisa Gutierrez, and Vishaka Durba. Edited by Alison Brujek and Annabelle Bacon with original music and sound design by Isaac Jones. 
Engineering by Carol Severao. Fact-checking by Kate Sinclair, Mary Marge Locker, and Andrea Lopez-Cruzado. Audience strategy by Shannon Busta. Special thanks this week to Kristen Lynn. 